you are now entering the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. Today I'm talking with Z Yang, the founder of the game development studio called Serenity Forge. The tagline of the studio is creating interactive experiences that challenge the way you think. He was gracious enough to share his life story and some of the secrets for making meaningful games. He doesn't look at games as just a business or just fun but as a way to make the world a better place. Joining me today is Z Yang. He is the founder and executive producer of the video game company Serenity Forge. Thank you for being here today, Z. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So first off, I really want to talk about Serenity Forge, but it's kind of hard to talk about what you do without talking about your life story a little bit. I read that you programmed your first game at the age of 10. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's not It's not like a super proudly presentable game, but I actually, I used uh, Quick Basic at the time uh, on like an old, like maybe Windows 3.1, I think that's what it was, or maybe even DOS. I can't remember how, how long ago that was. And um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote a game that uh, it was, it was tic-tac-toe. And I had, you know, at first I had a two-player mode on there because AI is hard. And then eventually I was confident enough and wrote my own quote-unquote AI for a tic-tac-toe computer. And uh, yeah, that was my first game. And I made that when I was 10 years old. That's amazing. Did did you have family that were programmers or anything like that? How did you learn? Um, I mean, definitely, very fortunately, both of my parents are electrical engineers. And, you know, my dad actually Uh was a professor in programming at a pretty... Uh, you know, at a nice uh, university in China at the time. So that kind of helped me a lot. And also, I was actually in this um, kind of like a, it was a technologies class uh, in school at the time. But um, the teacher was a programming professor who was retired. So he was very adamant about teaching the kids, uh, you know, programming and all that. So I kind of did it through that class with my parents' help. That's cool. Um, So You've got your own video game company now, which is kind of the dream of a lot of gamers, or maybe they'll call it their dream. But you you went through a period of your life that was kind of the opposite of a dream. Can you tell us about that and how games played a role in helping you through it? Yeah, so this is kind of like the, um, I guess, the the major story that I typically tell people about how I got into video games. And that is, um, I've always been a gamer. Uh, I think pretty much everyone who is into video games or in the game industry is pretty much a gamer. Um, And I've always played video games throughout like middle school, high school, like obsessively, way too much, way more than I should have um, even. And because of it, it actually got me into some serious um, health issues. Um, when I was 18 years old, I was diagnosed with a very severe and chronic blood disorder that caused me to actually be hospitalized for two years um, from when I was 18 to when I was 20. Um, I think I, I turned 21 by the time I was done with it. So, uh, this moment in my life, and that was a really difficult uh, moment because... Um, 
medicine, traditional medicine, just couldn't uh, really cure what I had um, because it was such a rare illness. So what I did essentially was that, well, the doctors told me that, uh, you know, I could essentially just die any any moment. And um, I had very uh, a very short time to live um, because of the rare, rarity of the illness. So I just kind of stayed in bed and played video games all day. Like I would play tons of single player games like Chrono Trigger and uh, Final Fantasy. Um, and these games like would teach me that I can go out there and save the world and be a hero. And it actually really motivated me, even though I was in such a uh, uh, kind of depressing state. Um, and then on top of that, I started playing all these uh, multiplayer games, games like World of Warcraft or League of Legends. And these games introduced me to a lot of friends online, all these friends from around the world that uh, would, you know, take care of me uh, digitally, at least, and, uh, you know, check in with me, make sure that I've been taking my medicine and connect me with uh, even doctors uh, who eventually ended up helping me uh, go through some really difficult times. So in a way, I would say that video games kind of saved my life when I was uh, at that point, uh, at that age. And because of it, I would always look back throughout college and think about how, you know, I played all these games that helped me, even though they weren't designed to help me. What if I start making video games with the intention to help others? What kind of power would I be able to unlock there? And that's the reason why I started Serenity Forge. Yeah, that's amazing. I know that's one thing that a lot of gamers have trouble sometimes explaining to people is that games are more than just, you know, the flashes on the screen and the puzzles. It's a lot of the times it's about the people that that you're playing with and the connections you make. And those, especially in your story, it's really obvious how that was really important. And being in a hospital bed, you had very limited options for friends and very limited reach probably, but games enabled you to to make those connections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh it's one of those things that you you tell someone who is a gamer and they would totally understand how uh, I had that experience. But on the flip side, if you tell someone who is not a gamer about this, they'll just they'll, they'll have no idea what you're talking about and almost feel alienated. It's like, "Really? Are you sure that actually happened?" So, yeah, I, I yeah, it, it was amazing. So you started Serenity Forge and you gave it the purpose of making games that are value driven or you know have a purpose so what what kind of purposes or values are you instilling in these games yeah so i i think the word value driven is um a lot of time misunderstood and also um you know like i like to call it meaningful um kind of development um and the way the the reason why i say that is it's not that i believe that games outside of this mindset is not meaningful but more so that it's kind of just the way that we approach how, how we approach video games. I think, you know, having talked to so many game developers in the past and, you know, so many game devs as friends, um, the commonality that you see in why people start making video games is that they fall into one of two categories. They are either people who want to make the next big thing and really cash in on that, right? Like people who are just like, I want to make the next World of Warcraft. I want to make the next Overwatch. So that's like one category. And then the second category that I often see 
is the group of people who are really passionate for a specific game and they just want to make their favorite game the game that they want to play the most and a lot of times um you know you see you see a lot of successful indie products coming out from this bucket but for every successful game that you see in that bucket there's probably like a thousand more that are unsuccessful uh with the same intention so the way that we see it uh, or i guess the way that i see it personally is that when you make games, neither of these two should really be your goal. Um, they could be uh, they could be tools to be used to achieve your true goal. But the goal of making a game is more so, what do I want this video game to do to change our society? It's, it's kind of how I perceive um, like value-driven uh, games. It's what kind of value does this game have on society? And these are the values that we want to do or want to express through the game. And subsequently, uh, maybe it'll be a game that drives a lot of financial profit as well because it drove value. Or maybe it's a game that we're also really passionate about um, because it drives value in our own lives. So so this is kind of the, the way I see it. Um, and the, ga- the ways that we approach game development is always like, hey, we want to make a game that um, can contribute to education. It could facilitate uh, uh, health or, or promote health or facilitate business operations even. Um, and possibly, uh, you know, different areas like promoting art um, and creating so- social impact. So are there games out there besides ones that you've made that you look to as good examples of meaningful games um i mean there there are so many uh but the, the there is one game that I, that I always bring up and my friend my friends joke about this uh they 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 tell people that i bring up this game about you know a third of my conversations in life and the game is gone home i think gone home is the perfect example of what i'm talking about from an artistic and societal impact standpoint um have you had a chance to play gone home yes i have actually uh, somewhat <laughs> right. recently yeah it's it's an amazing game uh, maybe not the most exhilarating game while you're playing through it but it's one of those games that just kind of stuck with me for the rest of my life so gone home is uh, this game where it's all about uh being in the shoes of an older sister uh for uh, where your younger sister comes out to your family to be um to, i mean to to like girls right i mean that's it's mm-hmm. a it's a pretty straightforward premise and nowadays it almost feels kind of um silly how this topic could even be something that's controversial but when gone home first came out many years ago i mean gay marriage was not legal and uh, you know the society was completely different but when i played that game i learned so much i mean i've taken gender studies classes uh in, in college uh but i'm an i'm an asian uh, man <laughs> who grew up in a very traditional asian household how would i have ever possibly been able to understand what kind of a mindset that is, unless if I actually played a game like that. And the more crazy thing is, after I played it, I liked it so much, and I introduced it to my mom, who was a gamer back when she was younger. And uh, so my mom was a very traditional, like, fundamental Christian Baptist type person. And I managed to track down a a Chinese translation for the game that was fan-made, and I showed her the game. And after she played that game, she... um, Definitely, I mean, like, it didn't, like, immediately change her mindset and send her out protesting or anything like that. Um, but but she definitely opened up and she was like, okay, now now I get it. Like, I, I really understand what these people are going through. They're, 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 they're people too. And, you know, like, like, from a fundamental Christian standpoint, 
to me, that was very, very powerful. Um, the way I compare it is that Gone Home is the modern day, a modern age comparison to something like Uncle Tom's Cabin from back in the days when, um, you know, black rights was a, was a huge deal. And I think that's just a great example of how value can be uh, driven in, in video games. That's amazing. I definitely had kind of a similar experience with that game that it's not like you are completely inhabiting a person, but you're in a position that you're understanding things in a different way that movies and TV shows and even books can't really do because you're not the one who's taking the action in those things. Whereas in Gone Home, I'm the one who's walking around the house trying to figure out what's going on. I'm the one who has to go up to the attic and I don't know what I'm going to find. It puts you in a different position that other mediums simply can't do. I think that's that's really important that a lot of people try to kind of dismiss games, but they ignore that very important point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the side note on that is, you know, after being such a fanboy of Gone Home, uh, I I am actually very honored uh, at the fact that uh, the Gone Home, uh, one of the Gone Home developers, his name is Janeman Nordhagen. Uh, he uh, he is actually uh, now um, a co-developer with us on uh, one of our next games called the Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. And we're kind of creating another whole new narrative that is trying to challenge uh, the way people think about American culture. So, you know, th- these are things that like, you know, dream- dreams do come true type of things. Oh, that's awesome. When making games that are that are meaningful or value driven, you know, a lot of people think of the educational games they play when they're younger or, you know, the ones that are available now. And, you know, the real concern for them is, is it still going to be fun if I have this emotional experience or is it going to be fun if I learn something? So there's different approaches that could be taken. But how do you with Serenity Forge, how do you add in those ideas and that meaning while keeping the game fun and engaging? The way I see it, actually, is that um, it's it's the developer's duty to um, inject uh, value into their games. So I guess that's a long winded way of saying uh, fun <laughs> has to come first. The way the, the I, I believe the, the term that we use is tangential learning. And basically the idea behind tangential learning is that it's still a game. When you play a game, you're always having you're you're having fun or you're being engaged first and foremost. And through that engagement, the player is being retained. Right? I mean, these are these are things that giant companies like Candy Crush or League of Legends they'll talk about um, player retention and all that. Uh, as long as you can retain the player, that means you can also have opportunities while they're being retained here uh, to to inject value into them. So it almost sounds like a little bit too methodical. Tangential learning means that when you're playing a game, you're tangentially being exposed to educational elements. And and not only that, you're not only exposed, but be, you're, you're being excited to, to want more. It's kind of like if you play, let's say Final Fantasy, for example, right? You play Final Fantasy, you're, you're introduced to all these different words like uh, Omega. What, what does Omega mean? No, no clue, right? Like from, from a kid's standpoint, you don't know what Omega means. You're, you're in like fourth grade. Or like you're introduced to things like Excalibur. What is Excalibur? Like no idea, right? But you would go out there and you start doing research and then you would find out what these things actually mean and the history behind all of it. Um, and these like little pieces 
are put in by the by the developers. They could very well make up other new words that never existed, but they use these things in order to inject value. And that's kind of just an example of how I believe true educational games should go towards. Um, the difficulty with educational games is that there's always an educational academic criteria that like the government and uh, institutes would enforce onto your software in order for these pieces to be used in an academic setting. So that's where it becomes complicated uh, more often than not, is when you have to scientifically prove that your video game can actually increase ACT or SAT scores after kids playing them. Well, for especially an indie game development company, that's pretty impossible. You know, you don't have the time to go through years of research and study to make that proof, um, thus making it impossible for these games to be really used in classrooms, unless if they're designed by larger backed organizations who uh, only had the sole intention of making that proof. So so how does the uh, the process for when you're making a game with Serenity Forge work? Yeah, so I, I think the easiest uh, first step for us is always what's the purpose of making this game? Let's use uh, The King's Bird, I suppose, as, a, as an example. Uh, the King's Bird is one of our newer games that we'll be releasing uh, pretty soon. Um, and when the idea first came to be, there were two different purposes. Uh, the creative director behind The King's Bird, oh, that's another thing regarding our team, is that any, anyone can be a creative director uh, and, uh, and the rest of the team would back you. That's kind of just our internal culture. But So the creative director behind The King's Bird is actually our uh, lead effects uh, engineer. And he is a huge fan of games like Dust Force and Journey. But what he really found that was uh, unfortunate regarding uh, especially some of these really hardcore uh, hardcore uh, precision platformer games is that they're all really difficult to get into and pretty much impossible for any uh, non-gamer to enjoy. But he thought about how you know he wasn't a gamer uh, before either. Like It took him a lot of time to become a gamer. Um, how can we introduce this type of um, mechanical mastery type of enjoyment, that kind of accomplishment, into a game that anyone could enjoy? So in order to bridge that gap between hardcore gamers and casual gamers, essentially, uh, his idea was the King's Bird. And the idea, the purpose, I mean, that's essentially the purpose for that game. And the game design is that the game's feet. Uh, the, oh, that, that's kind of like one of the purpose. The other purpose was um, he wanted to tell a story about the duality between order and chaos and um, freedom and tyranny. And the fact that neither is strictly better than another and neither is, uh, is you know, free to, 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 for, for anyone to, to, to get, essentially. So that's kind of how the game's foundation was formed. Um, it's a it's a momentum based platformer where it's 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 the visual aesthetics are designed in a way where anyone can pick up and play, and the game learning curve is fairly simple, but it becomes really challenging. And we introduce a high score leader, uh, high score, and you know online leaderboards and replay systems in order for these casual gamers who are just here to play for the story to be like, huh, I I wonder if I could do a little bit better than I did before. Or, huh, I, I wonder what the world's best person would do on something like this because I felt like I did pretty well there. Um, and those are all just things to try to motivate casual gamers to find that type of mechanical mastery enjoyment. 
but at the same time bring a really deeply emotional and thought-provoking story into something that otherwise would be Dust Force or Super Meat, Super Meat Boy. When we were talking before, uh, we were talking about one of your games that is that has that tangential learning that's a little closer to an educational bent. So can you give me an example or two of of the value and the the purpose of that you kind of sneak into the games that you uh, create? Yeah, so the game that we discussed earlier, uh, Luna's Wandering Stars, um, is one of our first games. So it's not nearly as polished as some of our uh, nowadays games. But um, the game was designed, basically it was to look back at high school physics. Um, to be totally honest with you, I, I sucked at physics in high school, and I hated it. It was my least favorite subject. The teacher was mean to me. Um, and, you know, it doesn't help that the fact that I, I, I'm Chinese and I'm supposed to be good at physics and supposed to be good at math. Um, and, and that just kind of made the matters worse. So I've always struggled with physics. Um, but I never felt like it was a subject that I shouldn't be able to understand. I mean, I loved, I actually really liked math and did math really well, but it's just, for some reasons, physics just didn't stick. So, um, when we all started working together on video games, one of the ideas that we came up with is, you know, how do we make physics intuitive? How do we make physics fun? Because, like, for example, I mean, if you think about a moon or, uh, you know, orbiting uh, orbiting a planet, Earth, for example, uh, when you, let's say that this, you know, gravity setting, uh, you apply a force on that, you push that, you push the moon, you know, direction, right? Technically mm-hmm. speaking, everyone's going to feel like, oh, you're, you're just going to push it. Uh, if if you, there's no Earth, um, if you push forward, uh, it's just going to keep going. But if Earth is right next to it, if you push forward, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, you have like 90% of the population not really knowing what, what's going to happen. Oh, maybe it'll fly forward, but like curve a little bit. Um, one of the crazy things is, I mean, that's how you start an orbit, right? You actually uh, push it tangentially uh, mm-hmm. tangentially uh, to, to, to an orbit in order to, uh, for, for it to have an orbit. Um, these things are not intuitive for, for not for, uh, not for high schoolers and definitely not for, uh, <laughs> any, anyone younger than that. So we decided mm-hmm. to make a game that would teach this concept to make it intuitive. Um, so in Luna's Wandering Stars, uh, you play through, um, something like, f- uh, I'm trying to think how many was it? Like a hundred, a little more than a hundred, 150 levels, something like that. Can't quite remember anymore. Um of uh, essentially everything is just a physics uh, sandbox uh, level puzzle uh, structure, kind of like Angry Birds, but you have to solve each level using realistic planetary physics, like the GMM over R squared and F equals MA, all these equations are literally inside the game's code uh, for, mm-hmm. um, for, creating, uh, f- for creating those levels. Um, you would play through different planets and each planet would have a different like kind of power essentially I, we give players these powers like for example in the first world uh, in the mercury levels you get to control uh, a moon's velocity um, and you can see how that moon's velocity would interact with other moons with the planet etc uh, and then um, we also like in venus levels we would uh, purely do the force so you apply a force in any direction you want with a limited number of tries uh, you would you know try to create an orbit and then eventually we dove into stuff that's even more complicated, like um, like in, uh, like for example, changing the gravity of the planet on the fly and see how that would happen, or creating uh, 
wormholes where you know your uh, your moon can teleport from one place to another instantaneously and see how that would uh, change the physics structure um so so on so so this is uh kind of our way of making it really fun for players to kind of mess around with physics at a young age so that by the time they do get into high school they have a very intuitive understanding that the tangential force is the one that creates an orbit instead of something that's completely ridiculous and or like you know going into the planet or something like that I'm talking about education, you did a TED Talk where you talked about your story of what you're doing with Serenity Games and, and everything. And in that talk, you you talk about five areas where video games will change our world in the near future. And the first one's education, and there's also environment, business, science, and societal impact. And you seem pretty optimistic that it's going to happen in, in the next 10 years. What's going to to drive that change? How are games going to make that change? Is it solely on developers like yourself that are creating these meaningful games? I I actually, I mean, as sad as it sounds, I do believe developer initiative is probably going to be one of the main driving forces. Um, the truth is, I mean, as a company, we have explored all these areas independently by itself um, through various different projects. Healthcare and educational system, especially, are really difficult to tackle. They're very bureaucratic and often government um, policy centric in terms of uh, in terms of organizational um, just structure. So uh, it's generally really hard to get them to fund any type of projects like this that are very goodwill oriented. Um, and then you come down to something like science and societal impact. First of all, science is probably the most difficult to gamify out of the five different categories that I mentioned here. Um, I believe I gave the example of Foldit and how it uh, created such a tremendous scientific um, impact. There are other games out there who uh, really does help, in, uh, which really help uh, you know people create that kind of scientific uh, research impact but it's going to take a lot of very clever game developers who are also very strong scientists to make that happen and then there's the uh, societal impact which again is driven primarily by um, non-profits on which again i mean they're going to be struggling with uh, financial financial backing as well Funny enough, I believe that business out of the five uh, is probably the easiest. It's probably the fastest transition. Like there are a lot of different companies that are working on uh, gamifying and uh, just, just revamping their HR structures, using board games, card games as part of their interview process. And just all sorts of different tools that you can find nowadays uh, where video games play a huge part in, in a business, for example. Um, I mean, even in our company, I mean, you can say that we are a business where, you know, we would play games like, uh, you know, uh, DayZ or we could play Overwatch with each other after work. And that has created a huge uh, impact. And that's just from, you know, not even a real <laughs> kind of like invested uh, structure for that. Um, so going back to kind of like the what I said in the beginning, I, I do believe that everything will have to be driven by the developer, uh, developers who are passionate about the topics, mainly because it's hard for other non-gaming areas to really support games. The public image for video games is still just kids who haven't grown up and they are wasting time playing games. I mean, that's, that's going to stay like that for a while. It's changing rapidly. Um, but it probably won't change until the people who are in charge are no longer in charge and the people who are in charge are gamers. 
um, and they understand the value of uh, of video game mechanics in all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that time is coming soon. I don't know if you read XKCD, but there's one comic that's all about how the kids who grew up on Super Nintendo are now heart surgeons and hmm. uh, how that's probably kind of terrifying to some people. But an appreciation for games and understanding of games is of infusing a lot of people's lives and careers now. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 funny that you brought that up. Um, just the other day, I was talking to my dentist and my dentist was working on me at the time, working on my mouth at the time. And uh, and we were talk- like, talking about video games. And he's like, oh, yeah, I play League of Legends. And I asked him, okay, well, like, how much do you play? He's like, oh, I was really serious. I was diamond rank at one point. I was like, wow, that's that's really good. I really trust you with that drill then because <laughs> your hands <laughs> must be really stable. Hmm. Yeah, and yeah, and there are surgeons who train with video games. Some of them use it as a warm-up before surgery for keeping their reactions sharp and their fingers loose and everything. And I think it's great that a lot of people are starting to open up to the possibilities. And I I kind of noticed the same thing is that businesses are the first to really take it seriously, which is kind of an odd odd thing. But I think it is because there is starting to be research about it. And businesses are starting to realize that, hey, we can make our products more like games and harness some of that engagement. And we can make our the tasks we ask our employees to do more like games and get that excitement and engagement. So I, th- I think we're going to continue to see a lot of really interesting applications of games and gamification. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. I mean, even in education, you know, I have kids in an elementary school and it's actually pretty surprising how much video games are a part of their day at school. They they play a lot of games for, for math or they play games for socializing. They spend an awful lot of time playing video games at school. And Minecraft has made such an impact recently. I think that definitely in some of these areas you've identified that there's definitely going to be some big strides. One of the things that I've kind of thought about with this is that gamification sometimes gets a bad rap because there's so many poor implementations of it. What I've realized is that the problem is, is that making games is a lot harder than people recognize. And if you don't have experience with it and you try to make a game especially if you are trying to do gamification, which has the added layer of mixing in the limitations of of a real-life activity, you're going to get some bad games. You're going to get some poor results because it's harder to make a a good game than people think is, is the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, something that I firmly believe in is that every video game is educational. Video games are just inherently educational. The trick is that uh, it depends, uh, the education part depends on what the developer is teaching its players, right? I mean, you can play something like Angry Birds, you can play something like Call of Duty, and you're constantly learning things. Angry Birds is teaching you how to knock over bricks really well, right? Like the the physics uh, that they put into that game, the engine that they wrote, is very structured, it's very defined. And in order to beat a level, you have to learn a lot of things. I mean... For someone who is an infant, they're probably not going to be able to be able to beat an Angry Birds level on the first try, right? Um, mm-hmm. And same for most players. But then once you play it more, you start to learn the physics system and then you beat it. 
And that that's a learning process. So I think it just comes down to developers uh, really thinking about what they want to put into that educational component for every video game. Ultimately, you know, it's it's one of those things where I believe successful educational games are going to have to have fun be its foundation. Uh, and, and the learning part is kind of the, the good ethics part that they put into it. Um, you briefly mentioned Minecraft. Minecraft is actually uh, a game that you know, I have I have hundreds. I have like 800 something hours logged in Minecraft and I love that game. It's actually one of the games that I, I very uh, actively voice against in terms of educational games because mm. I think it falls directly into what I just said. Minecraft is not really a game that was designed to be educational. It just ha- so happened to be a very, very, very popular game that doesn't involve killing each other. Um, <laughs> like, I can't think of, like, maybe the top 10 games, 10 most popular games of all time, if you think about it, 9 out of 10 probably involve killing each other. So, Minecraft right. happened to be the one that wasn't. So, because of that, it became the educational uh, flagship game, right? Um, because teachers feel like it's okay for kids to play it, um, because schools feel like it's okay to allow kids to play this after school, and then eventually this just kind of became a tool where, like, hey, you know, maybe uh, we can all play together, maybe the teacher can play with the kids, maybe we can add a module where the teacher can add even more stuff to play with the kids. I mean, I, I kind of watched this whole process of Minecraft turning into an educational game as time went on. Um, when Notch first designed the game, he probably didn't even expect to, to, to make money off of this game, let alone be, become a billionaire, sell it off to Microsoft and have, have the most famous educational game of all time. You know, it, it wasn't designed that way. So that kind of popularity, designing a fun game, is still going to be at the core of every good educational game, I believe. Yeah, well, I think it highlights how video games are teaching us a lot more than we think they are, because from the very beginning, each game can have its own logic, its own physics, its own world. And to play that game, you have to understand all of those to a certain extent. So picking up a new game and getting to a point where you're competent at it, you're kind of starting from scratch every time almost. So something like Minecraft kind of highlights how there's just such a large quantity of education that has to go on. And it just so happened that that game, people recognized, hey, this is like building with Legos. We can see how building with Legos is beneficial because, you know, every parent wants their kid to be an engineer or whatever. Um, but a game like Minecraft, it, it didn't set out to be educational, but people recognized its educational potential. And I think a lot of other games could fit that category. And then we can go next step and look at how we can design a game from the ground up to to have that kind of impact and, and value. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nowadays you see a lot of different companies making really addicting MMORPGs, for example, where you would you know go out there, form a team of scientists, and you would conduct research on a landscape, and then you would have you know your engineer that's the different class system instead of mage, wizard, bard, or whatever. Uh, you would have engineer, you would have a you know like a explorer, you would have a scout, you would have a you know like a like a historian, and then you have all these different like roles where it's very real world kind of roles and, and kids would just really get into it and have a lot of fun. I know that this is kind of the foundation for a lot of 
I guess, new age uh, college courses as well on like certain types of uh, senior projects. You know, they would be split up into stuff like this, which is just really cool to see. We were mentioning Folded before. The leap was how do you take a task and turn it into something that looks and kind of acts like a game in addition to that to actually gather that the helpful information you gather the data you need so that you are actually completing a task so fold it once they made that happen they were pretty successful at that and then from there the players kind of took over and and did something amazing yeah, I mean, I you you actually reminded me of another game that I came across recently, which is really cool. It's kind of like the same vein, and that is uh, it's an image meta tag generating game. So basically, what this game does is that it gives you a random image that they have in their database, and it would the game is that you have to within like you know thirty seconds, you have to type down ten words that you would use to describe this uh, this image. And you get more points if you put down a word that more people have used. So let's say like I look at an image of an apple and then I type in red. And then like it turns out 150 other people also said red and then I get 150 points. But if I say something like uh, ugly and maybe only 20 people said ugly, I only get I only get 20 points on that one. So, you know, a game like that, it, on, the, on the surface, it seems like a really fun game where you're just like, oh, I wonder what other people might say. I'll say the same thing. Uh, but on the back end, you're you're generating meta tags for your image indexing, and that's that's really powerful, right? And that's something that computers would you know it would take many many years for computers to be able to do that. So pretty soon you have a game coming out, I believe, called Mystic Melee. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about that game? Yeah, so Mystic Melee is actually a smaller title um, that that we're working on. Um, it's kind of like this mashup. It's it's definitely mechanically very similar to something like The King's Bird. Um, and uh, it's our way of mashing two other images, I guess, and that is the the precision platformer speedrunning genre with a combat genre. So mm-hmm. we wanted to make a essentially a precision combat game. Uh, and Mystic Melee is um, set in this universe where it's it's kind of like a epic tale type of universe, almost similar to something like Star Wars. Uh, it's kind of like a space opera i guess is the best way to describe it and uh essentially it's just kind of like this small game that introduces the player to a, a dramatic story along with uh you know really complex mechanics that's able to um empower the player while you're mastering uh mastering the levels what are some other projects that are coming up yeah so so we haven't announced uh all of the games that are in our pipeline yet obviously but another game that i briefly talked about uh is called where the water tastes like wine and that is co-developed with the developer behind gone home yanaman so we're creating this game um it's a very bleak american folktale so the game takes place in the dust bowl era in america and basically it's if you ever read grapes of wrath it's kind of like grapes of wrath in a video game form uh the idea is that the Dust Bowl era is very difficult to live in, and that kind of cultural era is something that people nowadays don't really talk about. We wanted to show people how difficult life was at that time um, with this game. The game kind of plays... Uh, the way that Yanaman put it is, is kind of like this. When he made Gone Home, he said that Gone Home essentially is a first-person shooter where you don't shoot people. <laughs> <laughs> 
where the water tastes like wine to him is basically a Final Fantasy, but you don't kill monsters. Um, so you you just r- run around in America in um, as a homeless person uh, who has nothing to your name, and uh, all you could do is you could go around and meet other people and witness really weird events. And you know, due to that time period, pretty much everyone is homeless, uh, and all the people that you meet are really poor and struggling with their lives. And you just share stories. Like you would go to something, you you would go to a forest and you would see a black crow that is talking to you and telling you to, that you need to save your game. And that's actually a thing. And you're like, wait, what? Why is that crow telling me then to save a game? I don't even know what a game is. And then the next time you t- you meet someone and you're sitting there at a campfire, uh, you're going to tr- start sharing stories. Like, oh, you won't believe it. I met this crow in the forest that told me that I need to save my game. And then you start sharing all these stories and people open up to you based on the stories that you tell them. And uh, eventually... They show you uh, show you their true forms, and you understand what kind of a character they are in this uh, in this world. Uh, the game is written by fourteen different industry veteran writers uh, who uh, you know have written multiple different types of games and would write at places like Kotaku and Destructoid. Um, and then uh, you know, so we have some really quality writers behind the game. Uh, that way, we have very unique uh, divergent tales that we can tell in this really fleshed out world. And ultimately. Um, you die in that game. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult time period, and that's kind of how the game is structured. All right. So, how can listeners find out more about Serenity Forge and play the games that you make? Yeah, um, you can easily visit us and check out all of our games on our website, which is just SerenityForge.com, or uh, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook is just slash Serenity Forge, and Twitter is just at Serenity Forge. And then for me personally, my Twitter is at Zhenghua uh, Yang. So Z H E N G H U A Y A N G. It's kind of long, but but that's my full name, you know. So yeah. All right, great. So it was really great to uh, to talk with you today. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome talking to someone who is so passionate about games and is doing everything they can to push for games to expand. I hope that this inspires you designers or aspiring designers to infuse something more into your games. If you want to hear more from Z about his ideas and aspirations for games, be sure to check out his TEDx talk. There's a link in the show notes. Or you can search for TEDx Boulder, and the title is Video Games Saved My Life and How They Will Save Yours. There is your intelligence boost for the week. Subscribe to the show so you don't miss next week's episode about the psychology of video games with Dr. Jamie Madigan. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. You might know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration. Because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.